This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. How you doing? It's so good to be here with you today. Um, just to let you know, today was kind of a historic day for us as a church that right now is coming up on being about 10 years old. This fall, it's going to be 10 years since we launched, but today we did something we've never done before, and that's that we were one church meeting in multiple locations. Man, what a sincere privilege that is. If you didn't know, earlier today we opened our downtown campus, so we now meet here regularly at 9 and 10.30, and then downtown is at 10 o'clock, and so uh, they're right in the middle of of church, which is, it's kind of hard to believe. I'm speaking in two places right now, and and, um, and it's just just mind-blowing, to be honest with you. Ten years ago when this was nothing but a, a dream in my heart. I was praying this morning over it and just moved to, to honestly just, I was crying um, because 10 years ago all I wanted to do was to invite people that were far away from God to come closer to Him. And, and that's really what this is about. This isn't about being uh, the first church to do this in our community. It's not about... Um, it's not about numbers. It, it's about opening up seats for people who are far away from God to come close to Him. Uh, we actually get to start doing something special with that next week. We we step into next Sunday. If you're wondering where we're going after this series, we step into Easter, and that kicks off next Sunday with the very first Sunday of Holy Week. Easter is is really this beautiful week that begins with Palm Sunday. And next week we start that by, by looking at that, that first Sunday of the triumphal entry of Jesus that historically is called Palm Sunday. And you know, you go through that week and that week is so significant. It, it, Christians all around the world will celebrate certain moments throughout that week. It's pretty normal to celebrate communion and then to, to know, like for example, Good Friday, Good Friday's the the only day in the history of the world when something bad happened to somebody who was good. And so that's why we call it Good Friday, because Jesus did something good for us that we could never do for ourselves when he died on the cross. And so we're actually going to get together for Good Friday, and we're going to have services at our downtown campus at at 4 and 5.30 and then 7, and we're going to have communion together. And then Easter Sunday, we'll be back in kind of our normal uh, normal routine, except we're going to add a 7.30 service, kind of a, a sunrise service. If you're from around here, you know, it's kind of a tradition. We do that kind of stuff. And so we'll have 7.30 and 10 at our downtown campus, and then we'll be 9 and 10.30, our normal schedule here. Excited about what Easter's going to be. Now, today we're wrapping up. Oh, let me just let you know. So we actually have these cards for you. Um, to, that we're going to give you a pack of these when you walk out. And you might be saying, well, Kevin, why you, it's just, why you, you just told me all that information? Why are you, why you tell me that all over again? Well, the reason we're going to tell you again and put these in your hands is there are people in your lives that need to be here with you. 
you, you probably got some people that live next door or work with you, and, and you know that they're not involved in a life-giving church. And right now, the, the way that you can really serve them is just inviting them to come to church with you. Part of opening up two locations is to open up rooms so that we can invite some people to come to church with us, and it's always easier when you can put something in somebody's hands. And so we've got that for you today as you walk out. Now, we're, we're going to wrap up a series that we called Gifted. Started it just a few weeks ago, and uh, every week I've referenced this verse. It's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. And the reason that I believe this verse is so pivotal for us is that in many regards, when it comes to our awareness of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we are as a, a body, as a people, we are often very uninformed of the gifts of the Spirit. And so we've leaned into that reality for a few weeks and talked about spiritual gifts. So what is a spiritual gift? I gave you this definition from the very beginning in, ver in week one. A spiritual gift is a supernatural ability from God gifted to each of his children to advance his purposes in this world. It's, it's a supernatural ability. I'm not born with it. I didn't just naturally always, God through the power of his Holy Spirit gifted me that, and it's not for me, it's not to build me up, it's literally to build the kingdom of God. And if you know anything about the gifts of the Spirit, we've leaned into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which talks a lot about the gifts, but today, really to, to, to kind of bring this to conclusion, we're going to lean into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to really just spend this first part walking you through this because I want you to see something that the Apostle Paul is making real clear in the, the, the kind of presentation of the spiritual gifts. So in verse 4 in chapter 12, he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. And so what he's saying is you might look around and go, Well, they have the gift of, uh, of worship, and they can sing, and they have the gift of, of singing and they are, are, are serving and they can serve and then they've got the gift of prophecy and they can speak and you look around and you go well it's got the one of the conclusions that you might come to is well they got there must be a different spirit and he's saying no it's the same holy spirit that gives all of these different gifts. So in verse 7, he says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So the, the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit then manifests through the gifts. This is how it is put on display. The manifestation, and it's there, not for my good, but like I've been telling you, for the common good. This is for the building up of the body of Christ. This is for the building up of the church. It is for, not for, for my kingdom. It is for the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, he says, now I want you to see this. All of these are the work of the one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So again, this is he, the first part of this chapter, he's working real hard to make sure that this is clear, that the same Holy Spirit gives many different kinds of gifts. He gives gifts of service, and he gives gift of evangelism, and he gives, he gives everybody different gifts, but it is the same Holy Spirit, and he does it just as he determines. Now, out of that spiritual truth, 
he's going to begin to build a metaphor where we can understand our identity and how we function inside the kingdom of God. So in verse 12, he says this, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. He's saying that it's the exact same thing. There was one spirit that gave all the gifts. Now he's saying there's one body and that body has many parts. We understand body because all of us have lived in a body. So in verse 14, he says the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So there, there are just like, there's not just one gift. There's many, there's many parts to the body. So he begins to build this metaphor, and I think it's really helpful to just try to read through it. So we're going to start in verse 15, and I'm, I'm going to just make the, the overt op- observations out of each one of these. So in verse 15 of chapter 12, he says, Now if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. What he's saying is, is if you looked at everybody else and their gifts and you said, well, I'm not, I'm not the person that can speak or I'm not the person that can sing. It's obvious that I'm not as important. Maybe I don't even belong. He's saying, no, that's not true. You wouldn't just stop belonging to the body because you see another part in its function. In the next verse, in verse 17, now, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted it to be. And he's saying, listen, okay, yes, there are some people that, that sing, but if that's all that all we were, nobody would ever administrate. Nobody would ever lead. There'd be no hospitality. There'd be nobody serving. Yes, there are some people that speak, but if everybody was a person that spoke, we would never have all these other things that are necessary, that are necessary. So in verse 19, he said, if, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now, it's important to see this in the context that he's teaching on spiritual gifts. This happens right in the middle of the most concise teaching in the Bible on spiritual gifts. He's teaching us that we are all gifted differently, but out of our different gifts, we all fit into the same place that God is building something. He's putting it together. So in verse 20, he goes, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What he's saying is that you you might be tempted to say, well, I'm just somebody that serves behind the scenes. I don't do something that gets all the acclaim and all the attention. But he's saying, listen, if you understand that this is a body, you look over it and you go, well, that doesn't matter. Every part is needed. Those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And those that we think less honorable, we treat with special honor. And those parts that are 
presentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. And then he continues on, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be, pay attention, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. And then in verse 27, the very next verse, the Apostle Paul writes something that I want to speak over you. And I want you to read it as I speak, and I don't want you to just hear it with your ears. I want it to go all the way to your heart. Look at what he says. He says, you are the body of Christ. That you there is us collectively. We are the body of Christ. And then each one of you, specific you, each one of you is a part of it. God made you to be a part of the body of Christ. So today, I'm going to use the body, the, the physical representation of the body, to, to show you three things when it comes to how we understand God puts us together. And one is, first topic we're going to talk about is identity and unity. The second thing that we're going to talk about is the flow of life. And then lastly, we're going to talk about disunity, pain, and death. Let's get started. First one, identity and unity. In the first week of this series, I told you, and this is why it's important to know about the spiritual gifts. I told you, the way that God gifts you points you to who you really are. When I start to understand the way that God has given me spiritual gifts, it begins to point me towards my true identity. The way that God gives you points you to who you really are. You know, there's a cultural identity or idea when it comes to identity. There's a, there's a cultural idea, and that's that we are all independently our own person. That's where you look and you, you might have heard it said, well, we kind of got to let them decide who they are. Got to let them work it out. Give them some space. We are all independently our own person. The, the, really, the big buzzword right now is that we have agency, that I should have agency over my life. I should be able to represent myself and decide for myself who I want to be and how I want to be and what I want to be known as and what you want to call me and, and the results of this cultural idea that I should be independently my own person have led to ideas that now we don't talk about the truth, we talk about my truth. We don't talk about a reality, we talk about my reality. So when you kind of work all this out, it shouldn't be any surprise that in the logical outworking of that, that culturally we'd come to a place where we'd be saying, sure, decide if you want to be a boy or a girl. Why? Because what we've claimed culturally is that your identity is something that you get to decide. But please hear me out. Identity is crafted by God and cultivated in community. Our identity is crafted by God. This idea that I have agency over my life is an absolute lie. 
I do not get to decide what is my truth and my reality. Now, I have experiences that are a truth, but the truth is empirically the truth, and reality is empirically reality. It doesn't matter what I say about it. I don't get to write my truth and write my reality. It's truth. And I can't get to a place where I keep going, no, God, I know that, God, you made me, but I'm I'm going to tell you that this is how it is. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You, I, Please hear me. God made you. The Bible says that you're his handiwork. A good God made you. A good God made you. And I don't know about you, but when I look at God, God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't make a mistake when he made you. How he made you, there's a purpose in it. There's a design in it. God made you on purpose for a purpose. And this says something. This this verse says that God God made me, and in making me, he he prepared me to do something good. I'm created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for me to do. And I I want somebody to hear this because this is good news. If God's going to do something good through you, that means God's going to do something good to you. God's got to do something good in me first if God's going to do something good through me. God has good plans for your life. He desires good things for you. You are made in his image. And here's something that I've come to understand about anything. A creation cannot understand its identity without first seeing the vision of its creator. I love art. I mean, I always have. I I love even modern, like, street art. I I mean, I love it. Banksy has recently had an opportunity to go see it. Um, Banksy exhibit in Charlotte. Didn't get to go because one of my kids had had another engagement. And y'all know if you're dad and you get to go to the father-daughter dance or you have to go get an opportunity to go see Banksy. You know which one you're going to choose, right? Father-daughter dance, all right? That's so, so I went and danced with my daughter while my, the rest of my family got to go see Banksy. Banksy's a, a, an artist, right? And, and, and he, does, he does all these. And the, the thing is, is that you can look at it and go, man, that's cool. I don't know what that means at all. <laughs> you know, like I don't get it. I mean, it's like a mouse in a photo booth. What does that mean? I don't know, Banksy. And so, you know, the, the thing is that I can try to figure it out or I can listen to Banksy explain it. And if he exp- I go, oh, I get it. I get what he's trying to say now. I understand the vision. And you are a creation created by God. And until you understand God's vision for your life, you will never really understand your life. And I'm going to say some things today that are going to push really hard against some of your cultural ideas about who you are and how your life should work. And I want you to understand, some of you are going to have to make a decision today. You're going to have to decide, do I believe in the Bible? Am I going to follow what God says about who I am? Or am I just going to keep doing life the way I want to do it? Because here's one thing that is real clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God clearly shows us that our identity is a part of the body. A part. You're a part. You were designed to be a part 
of the whole. How can a foot be a foot if it's not attached to the body? It can't. There's no way it ever serves its purpose until it's attached to what God designed it to be attached to. You are not supposed to be the whole. You're designed to be a part. And there are places in our lives we learn that. We learn the humility that comes with that. I learned it playing sports. You, know, you can't be a good quarterback without having a good line and some good receivers and a good running back and a good offensive coordinator that calls good plays. There's a lot of people involved. Y'all might have watched a sports game last night of several big teams here in our state. You know what? You can't just, it's, it's a team. You got to have a team. But I learned that on a different level when I started playing music. You know, you can be a really gifted musician, but if you're trying to play music and the people around you aren't gifted, it's really hard. <laughs> and you want to know what? People are going to know. One of my favorite bands all time is a band called U2. Uh, Y'all may know them. You know, they they super popular. Bono, the, the lead singer, is just an, I mean, he's a living legend. I mean, just a living, he's a believer. I don't know if you know that, follower of Jesus. One of my favorite quotes on influence comes from Bono. Bono said that celebrity or influence is a gift from God that must be stewarded well. It's a commodity that you must choose to spend wisely. And he's done that. And I don't know if you know what red products are. Apple came out with one of the first companies to do that. A red product is a product that when it's sold, that a certain percentage of the proceeds of that product actually then get presented and given back to the red corporate, uh, red entity, the red um, nonprofit, and they actually distribute that money worldwide to alleviate child hunger. It started with, you know, Apple products, and just recently Ford came out with the red F-150, and that's not just the color, it's the product. Bon, I mean, Bono is, and not, not only is it just, he's a good guy, and he's incredible on stage, a phenomenal singer. And many of y'all, if you know you too, you might know Bono. You might know the guitar player, The Edge. He doesn't, you don't even know his name, right? That's all you know. It's just The Edge. That's what you know him as. Who literally revolutionized the guitar for a whole generation. Like, transformed the way that his instrument was played. When the edge started playing in the late 80s through the 90s, there were all of a sudden guitar players who were buying delay units and all, just to emulate the way that he played guitar. I mean, innovator, icon when it comes to his instrument. But most of you wouldn't know the other two players. Adam Clayton on bass and Larry Mullins Jr. on drums. You know, the, what's neat is they were, they were all friends growing up in Ireland. They kind of, their families hung out and, and they got to know each other. And I, I was listening to Brian Eno, who was an, an iconic uh, record producer. Brian Eno was talking about working with you too. If, you, if you're a music fan, Brian Eno has probably produced some of your favorite albums. If you're a Coldplay fan, he produced X and Y. I mean, he's, he's probably 10 of the, the top you know, hundred albums of the last hundred years were Brian Eno produced. And the first breakthrough for him was, um, was the Joshua Tree, which is a huge album for, for, for this particular group, for you too. In 2010, they were working together and Brian Eno tells a story about Larry Munns Jr. And they were, they were tracking all that you can't leave behind, which is a, a, a U2 song. And he stopped it. 
I'm not playing with this click track. And a click track is a click track that just kind of goes throughout the whole song, keeps everybody on beat. And he's stopped. I'm not, I can't play with this click track. It's off. It's off. And he's like, and Larry, we've, we've tracked every instrument to this song, to that click track. And no, I can't, it's off. And so Eno said, he zoomed in and he found out that, that it was a little off. So he backed the click track up six milliseconds, six milliseconds. And he played it for him and he goes, nope, you backed it up too far. And Eno said, then I pulled it forward two milliseconds. And he finally said, that's right. So Brian Eno's being interviewed by a guy who's researching the brains of drummers. He's a neurologist. And he makes this comment. He says, I think that level of awareness is absolutely staggering in a musician. You may know Bono, but you probably didn't know Larry Mullins Jr. But there'd be no Bono without a Larry Mullins Jr. Greatness is never born in a vacuum. I promise you that when you look at people who you go, they're living great lives. There are people around them that are, are phenomenal, that are serving that vision. And, and they're getting all the glory and the recognition, but that's kind of, this is the whole point that I'm trying to let you see, that, that we're not born in a vacuum. Like God designed you to be a part of the whole. God designed you. And there's some of us that are called to be the Bonos. And then there's some of us that even in our greatness are called to be the Larry Mullins Juniors. God designed you to be a part of the whole. And if you're taking notes, number three, you'll never be whole until you're willing to be the part that God made you to be. This cultural lie that some of us have born, that I have to be everything, that I have to know everything and be good at everything and be liked by everyone. And I've got, I've got to be, you'll never be whole until you're just simply willing to be the part that God created you to be because God never created you to be the whole. That's the way the body works. The hand can never be greater than the eye. The mouth is never greater than the other. It's just all interconnected. So let me introduce you to a, a woman. Her name is Rita Levi Montalcini. Rita was a, a young researcher in Belgium in 1938. She had graduated from medical school, and in, instead of going to medical school, she decided to go into clinical research. And in those days, if you were a woman, you could have kind of been something like a nurse practitioner today, or, or you could go into research. And, and she was very interested in human development. So she went to work in Belgium researching the way that, that an embryo or a fetus grows. Then World War II broke out in 1939, when Germany inva invaded Poland and being very close to that, Rita decided that she couldn't stay. The acts of aggression were, were pretty wide. And so she moved back with her family. She moved to Italy. And, and, and while she packed very little to leave Belgium, she packed a microscope and took it back with her. She moved into her family's apartment in Turin, Italy. 
If you know anything about World War II, there were several countries that were um, called the, the Axis powers. That Those were Germany, Italy, and Japan. And so being in Italy, she was in the middle of a massive target. And Turin was actually a, an industrial town. And so the ways that the Allies treated industrial town is they literally carpet bombed the industrial communities to try to really go in and destroy what they were producing to, to kind of take out the backbone of the war. So Turin, where she was, every night went through a blackout. They'd cut all the lights out. And so her family would have to leave their high-rise apartment and go down into the basement. And what she was researching while she was in Belgium was how does the nervous system grow? One of the big questions in her day and age was how we know that there are nerves that cause the hands to, to ball up and, and, and we, we know that the body is wired, but how is it wired? And the only thing she had available to research was chicken eggs. That was it. And she created on her own these tools that she used in her apartment. And every day, she would do surgery on these eggs and create slides. And when they had to go down into the basement all night long, she would research and look at the, the slides over and over, studying how does, does a, a, a fetus grow? How, how, do, how do nerves grow? And she saw something. And when, when you see how this applies to us, it's going to change the way you see life. She saw something that nobody had seen before. She saw that all of a sudden, in an embryo, there would be a genetic marker. And then out of the body, out of the body, there would flow this life towards that genetic marker. And when it finally connected to it, then all of a sudden nerves would start to form and blood vessels would start to form and muscles would start to form. That, that it, that, and then the, the genetic marker would turn into a hand or it would turn into a foot or it would turn into an eye. It would flow out of that. While she was in that period of her life, she wrote two medical papers that transformed the way that doctors see human development. Normally when papers are published, they're, you know, from the University of such and such, and she just published from Turin, Italy. She ended up winning a Nobel Prize for her research in a time when women were, were not given a, a, a lot of a lot of credit or insight. And then she'd spend the rest of her life clarifying the discoveries under a lot of honor in her home country of Italy. I want to go back and look at what she learned. And I want to make a few observations about us. Number one, God made you to be a part of the body of Christ. I've said that, but I want you to see this in this perspective. God made you to be a hand or a foot or a mouth or an ear. God made you with a special, unique giftedness. 
And like Rita saw, she saw that when that genetic marker that's going to develop into a hand or into a foot, all of a sudden out of the body, there would flow life and it would attach to that. And then all of a sudden that which wasn't there would start to form like it was there. What wasn't life, there would be blood vessels and nerves and everything. All of a sudden it would be connected to the body. Now think about it. What is this body that as we are gifted, we're connected to? It's the body of Christ. So when you look in John 1, I want you to see what John says about Jesus. Beginning in verse 3, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word, which that phrase, the word is referencing Jesus. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overtake it. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You'll never experience authentic life if you're disconnected from Jesus. You might have some fun. You might make some money. You might be popular and cool, but you're never going to experience authentic life until you live a life that's connected to Jesus Christ. The local church in the Bible is called the body of Christ. And you look at what Rita saw, that out of the body, there would be a flow of life that would then attach to that hand and attach to that, that, that foot and attach to that eye. And all of a sudden, that which was disconnected and wasn't there would become present and connected. And that's what God wants to do in you. But I want you to see this. In her experiment, she also would cut off that genetic marker. What would happen? And of all the life that was flowing to that, what would happen is just almost instantly it would vanish. The cells would deteriorate and vanish back into the human embryo that was developing. The quickest way to disrupt the flow of this life is to disconnect from the body. The quickest way to disrupt the flow is to become disconnected from the body. God made you. And to use the terms that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, God made you to be a hand and to be a foot and to be a mouth and to be an eye. All of us with different callings and identities. But if you go back and understand, and I believe that God gives us insight into this body by understanding this body. If we get cut off, what happens is that flow of life that's headed our direction gets disrupted. And what was there is no longer there. If you paid attention at the very end, of 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul prays, I don't want you to come in disunity. I don't want the unity that's meant to be there to get separated. And I believe that this is why. What do you call a foot that's cut off from the body? Dead. That's what you call it. It's dead. 
That foot could have been the foot of somebody who broke a world record running 100 meters. That foot could have been the foot of the man who stepped on the moon. That foot could have been the foot of somebody who made a billion dollars. But when it's cut off from the body, it becomes debt. That's all it is. And I want somebody in here to hear what I'm about to say because this is vitally important. And I understand that culturally we're, we're pushing back against this idea. But I want you to see this in the context of the word of God that nobody is called by God to independence. Nobody. Nobody. This idea that I can love God and I can do life my own way is not a biblical construct of life. Nobody is called by God to live independently. We're called into, when it comes to each other, we're called into interdependence. We're called into interdependence. So that's where the, the eye needs the hand and the hand needs the eye. And, and the foot needs the mouth and the, the ears need the, the foot. It's just, it, it's all connected. It's all interdependent. And there's not one of us that's better than another. We don't function at a high level unless we're all functioning. We're interdependent. But when it comes to God, we're called to surrender and dependence. And somebody needs to listen to that today because what's propping you up in your life is your own opinions, your own perspectives. This is how I think it ought to be. This is what I think we ought to do. And the Bible clearly says in Proverbs 3, 5, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. You wanna know how you're blowing this when I'm not living a life that's surrendered? When I'm talking about my ideas and my perceptions and my desires and my fun and this is what I want and give me this and give me, when it's all about my perspective. We're called in our relationship with God to surrender and dependence, complete reliance on him. You know, I've come to see, just looking at this, and just practically, the quickest way to kill what God is doing in your life is to cut yourself off from the local church. In the last two years, I've, I've mourned in my heart as I've watched people who were, who were growing, who were taking big steps towards becoming that person that God's called them to be. And people who were really living in, in their purpose and their call, as I've watched them take steps away from what God is doing in their lives. I mean, just mourned it. The quickest way to kill it. And you know that there's a pain that comes with that. I was studying for this message, and you know, there's a phenomenon that happens inside the physical body when somebody is an amputee. If they have to have a, a hand or an arm or a foot or a leg removed. Doctors call it phantom pain. One of the clinical understandings of it is they believe it's the body trying to make sense of that part not being there. They won't even have an arm, but their arm will constantly feel from their brain. It just, it just feels like there's a pain there. 
They don't even have a foot, but they're, they're just, there's pain there. I know it's gone. The pain of that, that absence, there's, there's something that's supposed to be there and, and something happened and it was broken and it was, and it was hurtful and now it's not there. You know, there's always going to be a void in the body and an ache in your soul until you step into your role in the body of Christ. That's an ache that we feel because that part is missing. And I believe it's an ache that you feel. You know, there's a pain that comes when two things that God has called to live in unity separate. There's a pain that comes with that. I believe that that's why the Bible says that God hates divorce. Because in Ephesians 2, the Bible tells us that the the mystery of marriage is that two lives and two souls come into unity. And in divorce, that unity is disrupted and it's separated. And I believe that in every heart in this room, every heart in this room, there's a space that that pain occupies. There's a space that the, the pain of there, there was something that was there and, and, and it's all of a sudden it, it, it was unity, it was good, it was healthy and all of a sudden it got, it got ripped away and what was healthy is now is there's disunity, there's pain and, and it feels like something's supposed to be there but it's not and it's not always. It's not always the loss of a husband or a wife. Sometimes it's a friend that walked away. I look around this room. I know. For some of you, there's family members that you've lost in the last year. I mean, you don't know stories. We've buried kids of parents in this room. There's some of us that that loss is the loss of a a parent who early on in our childhood was no longer there. It's that pain of that which God designed to live in unity. And you, you feel the ache of it. It's not there. And the temptation of that pain will always be to blame another person. It's their fault because they left. I mean, look at what they, they, they did this. Look at what they caused. The temptation is always going to blame somebody else for, for our pain. But I, I need to say this real clear. The enemy is not a person. The enemy is not a person at all. You have an enemy. There's a real enemy out there that wants to literally take you out. And when I say that, a lot of times we think, you know, physically, but, but really take you out means take everything away from you that God wants to give you. Jesus said, I came that you may have life, but there's a thief that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. You have an enemy. 
the Bible says this in Ephesians 6, that we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. The enemy is not a person. You have a real enemy that wants to take you out. But you also have, if you're honest, an enemy in here. And that enemy is called sin, selfishness, doing life my own way, my own desires. I'm writing the script, and God, if you want to bless it, that's okay. You know, sin in its simplest form is rebellion against God. It's looking into the heart of God and saying, God, I know you want me to forgive them, but I'm going to hold on to that offense longer. God, I know you want me to give, okay, but here's, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with my money. It's looking into the heart of God and saying, I see your desire for me. I see your plan for me. But you know what? I'm going to do life my own way. And one of the simplest, most overt and common ways that we rebel against God is our futile attempts at independence and trying to do life our own way and looking into God's heart and saying, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. And when we do that, it is absolutely nothing but sin. That's all it is. Doing life my own way. Futile attempts at independence. It's sin. You know what the Bible says about sin? In the book of Romans, it says the wages of sin is death in Romans 6. Which means that when I sin, my sin is earning a wage. And there's a payday that's coming. And when that wage is delivered, it will be death. Some of you are living that right now. In your marriage, you have not been obedient to God. And right now, you're, you're cashing the check of death. It might be in your finances. You haven't been obedient to God, and right now you're cashing the check of death. It might be in your emotions. You haven't been obedient to God, and you're cashing the check of death. But what's awesome about this verse is that's not the whole verse. The wages of sin is death. And I couldn't, I could not end this series called Gifted without bringing this back into it. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The free gift. This is the most foundational gift that comes out of the heart of God for us. Eternal life. That my life is not just this existence that somehow through what Jesus did when he paid the penalty for my sin, when his death was the final death that comes out of sin, that somehow I'm invited into eternal life right now where death is not the end of my story. It transcends into eternity with Jesus, my Lord not my counselor, not my advisor, not my buddy, not my friend, my Lord. And the word Lord means boss. 
It means I've turned over control. I've surrendered. It's no longer my way that I'm propped up with. It's no longer my opinions that matter. From this point on, I have surrendered my life to him. He is my Lord, and because he is, I've been invited to receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray together. God, right now in this room, I believe you are speaking to hearts. There are some of us, God, that you are calling out of darkness in the light. There are some of us today, God, that you are right now, you're inviting us to surrender to stop doing life our own way, to stop leaning on our own ways, to surrender. For some of us today, the invitation is to stop trying to be the whole and to start trying to be the part, to accept in humility our role in the big picture of what you're doing. God, we thank you that we'll never be whole until we find our part in the whole. Thank you for always provoking us to humility in that. And God, for some of us, maybe today, right now, the the invitation is that we've, we've cut ourselves off from the body. And what we need to do is we need to recognize that there's life that flows to us when we're a part of the body. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.